Hello and welcome to the Rubber Duck Dev Show. I'm Chris. I'm Creston. And tonight we get to talk about my favorite topic, tests. We're going to talk about how to organize your tests and your test suites. Um, but before we get into that, we can review. How was your week? Like a roller coaster, some good and some bad. <laughs> like even today, like morning was going well, getting stuff done. I actually had multiple consulting calls, you know, got all that done and then hit the wall with the programming problem that I was like, are you kidding me? And it's like Googling, Googling, Googling and not finding the answer to anything. I eventually found my way around it just by looking at, because it, it, it had to do with text parsing and it was reporting encoding problems, which text encoding problems are like the bane of my existence. They're 10 times, in my opinion, they're 10 times worse than time zones. But anyway, uh, so then I haven't been, this past week in general, I have been doing a lot of app development on my own app, but basically working on uh, doing upgrades for other people's apps or developing some new features that were required doing some DB consulting, like I mentioned. Uh, the most interesting thing I'm doing is working with an old app and trying to get it to talk to Rails. And the API that it's using is a SOAP API written in XML. Whoa. And what's interesting is that the specifications for this interface it's XML and it's UTF-8, but then what it does is it has another XML payload, then it converts into a string and places in the XML called XML string. Oh, coded, <laughs> coded UTF-16. Who was drunk when they spec that so you, out? <laughs> you have to receive the payload Ouch. Parse the XML, get the string, handle the string if the UTF-16 uh, did something funny from UTF that like typically Rails works with, and then parse it again, and then hope there are no problems. <laughs> oh, that's just disgusting. Oh, ouch. And I'm finding out the way why this is, because I'm using tools like Wireshark to actually see what things are being sent where, what the packets are coding. And it's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> oh, yikes. <laughs> oh, that's, that's hateful. So, so that's uh, some of the interesting lowlights of my week. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I've got, I, I had a couple of minor bug fixes and stuff, but once again, I've got a week where I'm not spending a whole lot of time programming because the team on the other side of the phone for our big client that I work with, they're, um, my counterpart over there, they're doing some leader rotation. So he's migrating out, got somebody else coming in. So I've spent the week doing a lot of, you know, handshaking and baby kissing, trying to learn the, the other person's play style and, uh, how their, how their character is specked out. So, so it sounds like your positions programmer slash project manager to a certain extent. I, yeah, I mean, I'm 
or my, project coordinator or whatever. My primary function is to interface with that customer and be their primary point of contact and manage their yeah. needs. So yes, I'm I'm actually functioning more as a project manager than as a developer right now. But th that's yeah. fine. I actually like that better. I I dig the project management stuff. So that's cool by me. Um, but I do still get to, you know, dip my toes in the in the engineering waters every once in a while. So that's that's nice, too. Um, but, yeah. So, you know, it's just been one of those weeks where something different happens. And then off you go into another rabbit hole. All right. So tests. I love the tests. We're gonna, you guys know how I feel about tests. I talk about this so much. Um so we are going to talk about uh, something that is uh, I see a lot as an issue. Um, when I take a look at other code bases and stuff, this is a major problem. That is, how do you organize your tests and, and your test suite? So I'm not just talking about where do you put the files. That's one thing we'll talk about. But it's not just that. It's how do you organize your actual code in your tests. Um, as well. We're going to concentrate mostly on coming from RSpec in Rails, because uh, that's what we both work with. But a lot of the concepts we'll be talking about uh, will, will work for pretty much any test suite. Um, there, there will be and some you've specifics. Done, and, you can also, and you've also done tests in .NET, Windows development, right? Eh, yeah, a little bit, but that wasn't that wasn't a web development. That was I desktop know, development. So but it's yeah, still and it's development. Yeah, yeah, and and .NET. <laughs> yeah, so. And I've done stuff in Elixir, and like the Elixir tests are I, they're probably more akin to mini test in mm -hmm. Ruby, as opposed to RSpec. So you know, I can speak a little bit to that. Right. So, because RSpec is a little bit of a different animal, like they call it, like if you go to the RSpec.info website, they call it, you know, behavioral driven development. Well, yeah, and that's. <laughs> well, I mean, that's why they call it spec. That's that's why they call it specs. As I know. Opposed to yeah, because they're you know you're supposed to be writing the specifications for your app. Right, which is one of my big arguments of why does cucumber exist but well anyway. but they don't they don't are dealing with cucumber they're just dealing with our specs they're calling the RSpec tool that type of tool no i know but the whole point the whole big selling point of cucumber was it's bdd and i'm like okay but so is so is our spec so is our spec so why do i need cucumber it's a exactly. dsl on top of our spec and just runs slower exactly Anyway, that's that we've we've already done that show. Um, so, all right. So let's talk about a, a few ground rules. First of all, no ground rules. We all there's, fight. There's no rules. <laughs> Punch him below the belt. No perfectly rules. fine. Eye gouging. <laughs> fine. Um, this is th these are highly subjective opinions. There is no. This is how you do it. This is how the community all does it. It is so fragmented as to the, the recommendations of how to do this stuff. The Although only... I, 
I think I've heard there's my way and then there's the wrong way. Yeah, <laughs> that's I mean, I know I know that in my case, that's true. <laughs> Everybody else is wrong. But, you know, um, but yeah, it's it, so these are all going to be opinions. And this is going to be how we do it based on our experience and what we have found works best in our situations. Um, so we can tell you what we do. We can tell you how we set it up and we can tell you why we've made those decisions. But uh, it, a lot of this depends on how your brain works, how your team works, what kind of project you're working on and what works best for your workflow. So there's a whole lot of variables to take into consideration here. Um, but I will tell you that the big takeaway is going to be you need to think about things like this and you need to pay attention to your test uh, structures and and the health of your tests. And what I see too many times when I go into new code bases is they may have great test coverage, like 90, 85, 90, 95% test coverage. That's fantastic, but their tests are an absolute mess. And it's impossible to find anything or read them. Why are they a mess? Well, so let's look at a couple of things. We're, we're going to kind of talk about this in two sections. One is what's in a test file and how a test file itself is structured. And the other is how your test suite directory structure is structured. Is Yeah. So. Um, we're going to kind of break it into those two halves. So first, I want to, this is backwards from the way I've written my notes, but I want to start with how do we organize the folders and the, the file structure itself for the tests. So the most typical way and kind of the default for our spec and a lot of other test languages is your structure of your tests kind of mimics the setup of your app directory. So you've got a controllers folder, you've got a models folder, you've got, um, you know, all the folders there that you're going to be doing. Uh, a lot of times you'll have a, a folder called integration, which is kind of its own little different thing. Um, but it's still kind of one of those top level things. And then whatever subfolders you have under there for your, your objects, you know, all that stuff, uh, your views it kind of follows that same structure. That is, in my opinion, the best way to start your tests and keep them that way until there's a reason to change it. The reason I say do that is because then it's ubiquitous and if another programmer comes in to look, they know where to find the tests for things that they're looking for. They'll, know, they'll understand how it's structured because it's structured like the app is structured. So my first recommendation is keep it that way until there's a reason to change it. And not even just if you change it, I would think you change the app area, therefore you should change the test area to, to match it. Right. And that is one thing because a lot of times what'll happen <clears throat> is like you know, you start out with the standard Rails stuff the standard Rails app, and it's mirrored in your RSpec. And then you go and you add like a 
a functional area folder because you're doing something special, you know, you should add that same folder into your RSpec structure. Um, so yeah, I've go ahead. No, I, I've struggled with this a lot, the organization, how I wanted to organize it. And basically I've come to the same conclusion that, that you're kind of mentioning now, because when I'm a consultant and I'm jumping, I jump into different code bases and I just adapt to, or try to adapt to how they're doing things. So however they're doing things is kind of how I do things. But I think the structure that I favor is matching it however they're writing the app. So exactly what you're saying, a lot of times, you know, the controller tests will be in the controller area, the model tests will be in the model area, and helpers and helpers. <clears throat> but there are some projects that put, I haven't seen a lot of these code bases, but I knew they I know they exist where they put a lot of the business logic in the lib directory. Yes. So if your app is structured like that, then that implies you should have, and as opposed to being a framework folder structure, because when we talk about app, excuse me, the app directory, that is the Rails framework. There's models, views, controllers, helpers, you know, your test suite is mirroring that. But if instead you have more of a business-centered way of structuring the application in your lib directory, for example, then your tests should match that structure as well so that you can easily find the tests. Right. And in that case, I mean, I've actually put a lib directory under my RSpec so that it matches, even though lib isn't under the app directory, I put a lib directory in my RSpec. And that's not too much of a mental leap to triangulate that um i've never seen that as much of a problem so i yeah i there's a whole whole other conversation about whether you should be putting business logic in the live directory or it should always be under your app but that's let's forget that conversation for now if you do the live put it in your rspec folder or under your your test suite structure um that yeah i i have really no issues with that because that's not a that's not a giant context switch for me so this approach works fine until things start getting very large and what i mean by that is your test file itself starts running into thousands of lines of code at that point you need to start taking a look at should I be splitting my test files out into functional areas underneath this? So let's, let's for instance, let's say I've got a model that is an order model, okay? It, it has a bunch of line items and stuff, and orders get really complicated, and there's all this stuff going on and different types of orders and things. The model file for that, even though, you know, we try to keep business logic in um, POROs and not in all gommed up in the model, the model test can still get pretty long because you've got different types of, of these orders. So, you know, once things get out of control in your 
in your your uh, test file, which is, I mean, that's a subjective thing too. What is out of control? Is it a thousand lines? Is it five hundred lines? Depends on what it is and how it works for you. But um, once you said yes, this is too long, then you may want to start taking a look at breaking those out into functional files, so you would have a order. You'd have your models folder, you'd have an orders folder, and then you'd have several specs under there that are like order underscore this thing spec, under order underscore this thing spec, and break them down into functional areas so that you can focus your your um, test files. And we'll talk about reasons for doing that when we talk about how to organize inside your test file. but outside your test file, once they start getting too big, my recommendation is break them all out into functional files. Um, but keep them under that structure. Just make them sub sub folders or a, make a folder for the model or the controller or the whatever it is you're trying to break out and put the, the things under there so it still follows the structure. I don't know about that because, yeah, I'm kind of like, but does that indicate a problem that that model or that Ruby object is doing too much? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> that's something you so definitely want to look at. should the refactoring, you know, should you refactor it at that point? Yeah. Possibly. Hey, Mark, welcome to the to the show. Yes, dry is absolutely good for tests. Because when they break, only one place to fix. I, I completely agree with that. Um, test. There's a there's a a lot of things to be said for readability in tests because tests a lot of times end up being kind of de facto documentation. So you want them to be readable, and one of the ways to do that is to not let them get ridiculously large. Uh, do you try to use the same framework for unit tests versus integration tests? Uh, no, not not typically. Um, integration tests I treat as a bit of a different animal. Um, and yeah, that's a good question. And that actually leads into what where I was going to go next. So what we're talking about here are the functional um, or unit tests. But you are going to have a section, like I mentioned before, for like integration tests. And it, it, well, if you're doing this right you need to have integration tests those typically i will break into functional sections not object sections um so i'll have an integration folder in there at the same level as like models and controllers and stuff and then under that are functional sections for tests um so that's how i typically organize those because it there's a difference to me between TDD and BDD. BDD is typically, for me, contained inside the integration folder. That's where all my behavior stuff is tested out, user behavior. So that's where um, I will typically break that up into user behaviors or behavior type sections, functional groupings. But the other stuff mirrors the the framework 
typically. Um, but again, that's not typically a huge mental leap to follow that because integration tests are just at that same level and you kind of know what to expect under there. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of where I sit for the folder structures of tests. Um, I, I don't like to deviate a lot from the standard framework setup. I have seen people who write their test suites not as the framework structure, but as functional structure. Um, and if that works for you, that's fine. I don't like that. There's too many mental context switches between that and the code when I'm looking back and forth between the test and code and trying to track what's going on. It, it breaks my brain. It, there's just too much. Unless it's a very, very small app. Yeah, I, I do something similar. I mean, actually, I use... I rarely actually do controller tests. Yeah. And I use the feature folder for doing the the full stack, the integration tests or whatnot. So I use the RSpec features. Mm -hmm. So that uses Capybara or Capybara to, you know, drive the front end, the headless Chrome or headless Firefox to be able to run through the tests. And I use that to exercise all the controllers. And a right. lot of times that is more functional based as opposed to frame, you know, framework based. Right. And, and then like I use model and helper tests for all the unit tests. Right. Um, yeah, and I typically, I very rarely will do controller tests except for external APIs. I'll usually put those in controller tests. Um, I I almost, I can't think of one time I've ever done a view test because yeah. really I'm doing those, that's part of the integration testing. What yep. shows up to the user, what doesn't, what can they click, what can't they, right? So, And a lot of times you need JavaScript to do that anyway, so... Right. I will test like view helpers and stuff, but, but those to me but are, that's more like a unit yeah. test for helpers. So, right. Yeah. So, but yeah, the views themselves, I, I, I can't think of a time I've ever done a view test in our spec. I, I just don't and, see them as necessary. And for those of people in our audience listening who know what helpers are, they're just ways of having functions that are placed in views. So they are, enable you to write Ruby code and just embed a function within a view. Right. So you don't have to have a bunch of Ruby code in your view or your template. Right. So the fact that they have the name view in them, they aren't actually views. There's typically very little in the way of HTML in them. They're usually helper functions and more like POROs than, than views really. Um, so, but yeah, it's, it's, the integration testing gets broken down a little differently. Um, now, I think you and I, and probably me and many, many programmers, because I I know I've run into this, probably have a difference of opinion on what how far integration tests should go. Um, and that that could almost be a whole show by itself because it's a it's a kind of deep subject, but um, one of the things that I don't like, and I've fallen into this trap many times because it's easy to do, is to 
rely too heavily on integration tests and to start there um, when you're trying to do TDD or BDD. Um, the reason I say that is because either A, you get your integration tests all working and you never go and do uh, unit tests because, hey, this, the, you know, I've got 90% test coverage here. This is testing everything I needed to test. Why go do unit tests, right? Or you end up with massive amounts of integration tests that are covering 90% of your test code, and you have uh, unit tests that are exercising the same code. So you've got a test suite that's twice as big as it needs to be. Um, does RSpec report on code coverage per test? Uh, not not by itself that I'm aware of, uh, but there are plugins and stuff that you can get for it that will um, that can do things like that. I don't typically worry about code coverage per test. Um, I'm more worried about overall code coverage in general. But yes, I believe there's a plugin for RSpec that can do that kind of thing. Um, so I, I, what one of the things I learned is I don't start with my integration tests. I figure out what I want in the design process. I start with how how I want this to act on the front end and what what this needs to do with customer interaction and stuff. But then I start with the unit tests and build the make the bricks first, right? Build those unit tests out, and then step on top of that to build the integration test. Which means I I can concentrate in the integration tests on specifically user interaction stuff. Um, and so that it tends to keep the integration tests a lot more trimmed down. But it's I kind of I I do like the opposite, right? But what I do is I I say okay integration test for the happy path, mm -hmm. and then inevitably a lot of times controllers they say you know if this succeeds do this otherwise do this other thing, and then I have one condition just so that else is hit within the controller, meaning like if you're logging in okay pick one, give it either a bad username, a bad password, just something so that that failure path is triggered in a integration test. And then I'm done with the integration tests. And then I use my unit test tests to say, okay, there are actually nine failure cases I need to handle. And that's what the unit tests do. Right. For and that that's, particular uh, function or whatever. Yeah. And, and that's not, you know, I don't think that's an invalid <laughs> model. One of the things that I've, had issues with with that though is that what'll end up happening for me is um that it, if i start with the integration tests my integration tests end up testing things like hey if the user submit this submits this form i get a record in this model right that's not to me that's not the purpose of an integration test I shouldn't be testing things much past the HTML interface or the JavaScript interface with the customer in an integration test. 
in most cases. There are a few few times where that's there's an exception to that. But so what I noticed for myself when I did this is that if I started with the integration test, I would end up with tests that tested way deeper than what I later learned integration tests really should be testing. Um, and then it's kind of hard to go back and unwind that. Uh, so what I learned worked best for me is to start with the, with the, um, the unit testing part and then put the integration on top of that. So, um, Mark Clifton, I jump straight to proof of concept, get feedback until it stops changing, then freeze the behavior with integration unit tests. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with that. That's a good approach, I think. Um, right, and, you know, I, I, I think that's the thing is, one thing is you don't want your tests to design your, your app. You want to have your design and then you let your test drive you the development of that design. Um, and that's something else I see a lot of people fall into is they do test-driven design instead of test-driven development. And there's there's a big difference in there. Doesn't sound like there would be, but there is. Um, so anyway, uh, any more thoughts on the, on the actual structuring of the, the tests? All right. So, and again, these are my opinions and, and Creston's opinions and how we think things should be done, but there's a lot of ways to do this stuff. All right, so let's talk about organizing the stuff in one of the spec files. And this is, I have a lot more opinions on this than the other, because this is where the readability really comes into play. Well, that's a problem because we're already 30 minutes into the show. <laughs> oh boy. Well, it's going to be a long one tonight, baby. So, all right. Again, we're we're just going to be talking about the R spec, but the the concepts of organization should translate. Um well, I think R spec does a lot better job of allowing you to structure things than other test frameworks I've seen or used. It does. In, yes. In my opinion. Um yeah, on both sides. I think it it's a lot better, a lot more readable than test unit. And it's a lot easier to troubleshoot than Cucumber because it doesn't have a DSL layer in the way that you have to troubleshoot through. Um, so there's this thing that I've run into a lot with RSpec where they have a describe keyword and they have a context keyword. And they are, except at the very top level, they are functionally the same thing. They're interchangeable, right? You can't use context as the first keyword. It has to be a describe. But once you get past that, context and describe are interchangeable. They're synonyms. However, I don't like using describe except for that top level. If I have more than one describe in my um, structure in a file, I probably need to think about breaking that out to a different functional file. Contexts describe a set of stuff. I, uh, you know, I'm in this context. I'm in this behavior set. 
I'm in this setup. Here's what I think it should do. And nested contexts are great too. Um, and one of the things that I've learned to be real careful of is from my describe down to my context through however many levels of nesting I've got of those to my it statement, my actual test statement, that should all chain together and read like a sentence. You know, describing this model when this happens and this happens, it will do this. So if I just print out the context statements, I can read through them and they look like documentation. So, and what I've actually seen somebody describe it, and I'll have to see if I can get the link to it, but they were saying describe is for things, like what things are you testing, like a class or something, and context is for state, or at least that's how I think about it. Like right. you're describing the login process, and the context is with a good password, it successfully logs in or it fails to log in if the context is a bad password. Right. Yeah, and, and so that that kind of helps you track if you end up putting a describe in there. Well, now I've got more than one class in my test file. That's probably not a good thing. So I need to rethink my structure, my test file. Although I have seen structures and I'm, I may have done it where when the described is describing the class, like the first describe is the class, the second describe is the model. Excuse me, the actual method that you're testing. Right. Um, yes, and I used to so structure that would be, tests like that. That would be a nested. That would be a nested describe. Right, and I used to do that. And what I realized was that putting a describe on a method as a method name isn't usually a good thing to do because, again. If I start at the top and try to read down through it, it's hard to make that work into a sentence. And you really want that to do that. If you print out just the describes and the context, they really should read as a sentence. Because that helps you figure out what your it statements need to say. So Yeah. And and so I mean this part of it, I'm I'm not really happy with some of my tests. So I've been doing some research into it. And this is what this other person said, use describe for things and context for state. So if you're going to do that, it does require that type of describe nesting that you kind of don't go with. So that, that just shows different opinions of how to structure stuff. Well, yeah, and I don't disagree with the fact that I think that's a good way to think of it. Describe things and context um, state. What I would say is that I shouldn't have different things in the same test file being tested. That's that's kind of where my my you cutoff is. A file per method. Per well, if you're gonna do, if you're going to do it as methods, but I don't break it up as methods because I think that's not the best way to break it up in the file. Because, like I said before. Um it gets hard to read 
that if all right how, how would you do a unit test for a method <laughs> well i just i i have a context of what i'm doing in the method i don't always do a unit test specifically for a method what i'm trying to do is with this set of conditions if i call this thing right it does this so I may put the method name in my it statement or in my context statement somewhere, but it's not just describe this method. I don't break it down by method, typically, because okay. I want to read it as a sentence. And what I found is if I have a, a describe or a context of just a method name, and I used to do that, like context hash method name, right? I never could get that to work out very well as a sentence. And and so I I stopped doing that and once I started okay every every time I do an it statement or a context if if I'm adding one of those to the file I start at the top and I start reading down through my nesting and say does this make sense if I read it. And so that it got it got a little easier to structure things that way. Um so Mark asks, sentence example, given context, when input, then it. That is a perfectly valid example, yes. That's typically kind of what I'm looking for. Um, so I don't, I don't usually write specifically given in there, um, but I will put whens and thens. Um, but I mean, you certainly can. Whatever makes sense to you. But as long as you can start at the top and read it down as a sentence, uh, you should be in pretty good shape. Uh, all right. So, um, RSpec also has this this thing called a let, which is kind of a an ad hoc lazy loaded creation of a model or an object doesn't have to be a model any type type of object and then it has before blocks and after blocks but those you don't have to use those very often but before blocks and i just actually had this discussion at work today um as to whether we should have created something in a let or in a before the primary difference between those is a let is lazy loaded. It doesn't create the object until the first time it's used in a test. Whereas the before block, it it creates the object right then. Now, there is a let bang that will immediately create things. I've heard opinions that you should never use those. I, I think that's a crap opinion. <laughs> I mean, I'm, not to put too fine a point on it, but I'm looking more for readability. And the let statements to me are way more readable. If, if I've got all my objects being created on a block all together in let statements, I know what's going on and I don't have to jump between here's some stuff in let statements and then here's this before block creating this object and here's this one creating this object and I'm down in a test and I have no idea what the hell's being created. It's easier if I just have a bunch of lets. 
I will sometimes use the let bang and just, you know, create the thing. I, I don't really see a problem with that. But, full disclosure, there are opinions out there that you should never use let bang. If you need to create something now, put it in a before block. I, I don't find that as readable. Um, there's also this concept in RSpec called where you, they've got a subject keyword, and essentially what that is, though you can you can do different things with it. The subject is whatever you're describing in the test. So if I describe this model and then say subject later, it's that model. You can make the subject be an instance of a class or something. You can set that. I have a really big problem with just using the subject keyword directly because it is really hard to understand what you're talking about when you're halfway through a test file and you just see subject. If you're going to use subject, which I've never found a good reason to use it, but if you're going to use it, RSpec has the ability to name it. So name it. <laughs> Give it a variable name. So at least it's descriptive when you're when you're halfway down the file and you see what it is <coughs> um, so the naming of things one of the hardest things in programming naming things here we go so we talked about all these blocks like describes and contexts and it blocks here here are the kind of rules of thumb I follow when I'm putting these down so a context for me is usually when some condition, right? So my context is when I try to log in with a bad password or when the API payload has a bad this field in it. And then I set up whatever models, objects I need for that condition and then I do my it statements in there. Um, so in a lot of cases, my context statements are when statements. Um, and then my it statements are this will happen. Now this is a nitpicky thing, though <laughs> it gets a lot of traction on discussion groups on the web for some reason, but I really do not like seeing it should do this. That's nice. I want to know what it does, not what it should do. Uh, so don't use should. Use active words. Say, it will do this. When this happens, it will do this. Um, should sounds like you're unsure about whether your program is doing what it should do or not. Don't be unsure. Say it will do this. Um, and, you know, if you do this right, if you do this naming right, and you do this nesting right, and you read this out, it you can use unit tests as BDD and documentation and you know like story 
And isn't there a command in our spec? I can never remember what it is, but it actually reads out the test as yes. documentation that you've written. I can't remember what the command yeah, is. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember exactly the command, but <clears throat> which I should because I've used it quite a bit. But um, but yes, our spec has a, a format you can put out that is basically just the describe, the context, and the it information. So it can be put out as really good documentation if you structure it well as you're going along. Um, and, and then what that does is it kind of is another kind of nail in the coffin for Cucumber in my book, because one of the big selling points of Cucumber is I can write these in English as user stories. Okay, well, I can do that in our spec too, and I don't have to deal with that extra DSL layer. So, right. uh, so one other thing is, um, please do one assertion per test. Um, now, integration tests, a little bit different. There are some exceptions to that. Um, for instance, I can fill in the fields on this form. Okay, we'll check all the fields. There's no reason to do one test per field there that but that's still a functional expectation that to me is still one assertion even though it may be several actual assert statements right but that's that is a blob of thing um but something like an api test that says hey, when I call this API, it should produce this god-awful huge JSON, here it all is, and it should all look like this, ta-da, forever. That's asking for trouble, because I guarantee you, if you do that, and I know this because I fight with this constantly in the current test suite I'm having to deal with, if I change one thing in the API, I've got to go through and hunt through and change that crap in every single test, because they've put the entire JSON response for every little condition change. So no, what it should be is, if I'm testing that this field comes out like this in this condition, test that field in that condition. Don't test the entire thing. And just test that one thing. And don't, you know, don't go into it it will do this and, this and this and this and this and this and this and this. Those should each be it statements. If you've got an and in your it statement, you probably need to break it out. <coughs> uh, Mark Clifton, integration test got you. On a website, don't just assert that a success comes back in time. Instead, assert that something comes back, then assert that it's a success. More data when fixing. That is true. Good point. Thank you, sir. Um, so, yeah, it's... It, yeah, and time integration tests can get real tricky, especially if there's a lot of JavaScript, especially if you get into, um, like, WebSockets and stuff, which is getting more and more prolific nowadays. Um, there's a lot of weird crap that you have to deal with in, in integration tests, which is another reason that I've learned to start starting with the unit tests because I can ramp up a lot faster. 
than trying to figure out, oh God, how do I test this JavaScript? Um, all right, <clears throat> so some general tips on test management. Um, as you refactor your code, and you will, also refactor the tests involved in that code. Treat your code as a first-class citizen. It's just as important, or treat your tests as a first-class citizen. They are just as important as your code. Um, so like if you were to split logic out into separate objects, do the same with your tests. Split your tests out into separate object tests. And the stuff that was getting split out, move that stuff out of the old test file. Don't leave it in there and just dupe it over in the new one. Um, spend time keeping your tests. Once in a while, just go review some tests, especially if you're working on an area of code. Re look through the tests, review them, and clean them up. If they're if it's gotten too long, think about splitting the tests out. If you're going back and you're reading the describe and the context and the it statements and they don't make any sense when you actually read them, fix them. You know, work on it as you go. Because what you don't want to have is a huge mess when you've got 25,000 tests that take an hour to run. It'll never get fixed. Ever. It's too much. So do it a little bit at a time as you're going. And then it, you wouldn't think you'd have to say this a lot, but it's not as obvious as you would think it would be in most cases. Ensure that each test is self-contained and doesn't depend on the results of other tests. If you think that that you're chaining two tests together and that's taking a shortcut, you're asking for a world of hurt because those are almost impossible to troubleshoot when you have a test problem. Never have a test depend on another test. That's just, that's just never good. Make sure each test is self-contained. It can run by itself. And one of the, one of the reasons I like RSpec so much is that it'll randomize the order of tests every time you run it. You can get it to stop that. You can tell it run in this specific order, but you shouldn't. Let it randomize because that'll help help you know. Oh, uh, this, I, I've got a test here that there's some dependency problem, right? Um, whereas and it gives you the seed of the um how it ran it, so you can actually run our spec with that seed again to actually repeat the issue, so you can try to find what. Might right. Be causing the problem. Right. So, and to my knowledge, Cucumber doesn't randomize the test order. It just runs them straight as they're written every time. So, that's that's another thing I don't really like about Cucumber because that that's a missing check on the developer to make sure that they've isolated their tests, and and that's important. Um. So, holy crap, I really talk a lot about tests. Man, oh man. Um, but, you know, I'm passionate about it. I think they're important. I think they're they're necessary. I think they're... I don't think developers think about them enough. Um, they, they either don't do them at all, see them as a waste of time, or they... Um, 
they kind of tack them on at the end and say, eh, okay, you know, put a test in there, I suppose, and then never, never see it again. And I just think that's a that's a a wrong approach to programming. Even today, there, I mean, I understand years ago, but even today, there's tons of programmers that aren't doing enough testing. Less than a year ago. <laughs> He's rubbing his eyes, audience. <laughs> I got involved uh, in taking a look at a code base that was, uh, I would, I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 90 to 100,000 lines of code in the code base. Zero tests. Not a one. Zero. Zero. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's and it's it's actually a lot more common than you'd think. Um but even when tests are written I must, I must be working with pretty good clients cuz <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, and that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about cuz I when I see that it just it really just frosts my cheese because I cannot understand why you would not have tests automated tests that it makes zero sense to me but you know the other problem is even if you're doing tests i run into a lot of people a lot of situations where the tests are kind of a third class citizen they're they're the red-headed stepchild they don't they don't you know eh, we do it because we have to but i don't really want to deal with it uh and that that just that's almost as bad as not having tests at all because then what you run into is, oh, the test fails, so I'm just going to change whatever I need to in the test to make it pass. Well, okay, but is the test correct? <laughs> just because it passes doesn't mean it's correct. And I've seen many, many instances where uh, just copy this JSON and paste in there. One. It passes. Right. <laughs> And I mean, I have not not quite to that degree, but I have seen things where they, people will just, okay, well, this is the result I got, so I'm just going to paste it in the test, and now it passes. Ha ha. Well, that's you might as well not even have the test. That's it's absolutely pointless at that point. So uh, you know, I, I I guess that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about it, and why I gripe on this show about testing so much is that just that I I don't get that kind of thinking i think it's dangerous um it causes a lot of stress uh it causes a lot of failures and i just don't get it but i also like writing tests so you know maybe i'm maybe i'm just the weird one it's certainly possible anyway <laughs> oh man and it is so oh florida Oh, the allergens really got me all spiked today. Um, all right. Well, I think I've rambled and bitched long enough. Uh, so hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, if you did, please make sure and like and subscribe. It helps us out a lot. Uh, please do leave comments. We love to see your comments and we try to answer all of them. Um, just, you know, mash all the buttons and ding all the bells, you know. You know how it goes. Join us every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern for more Dev Talk. Uh, please chat with us. We love to talk to you 
live and tell your friends. Bring your friends. We know you have some because you're a lovely person. Um, next week, another surprise topic because we just haven't had time this week to figure out what we're going to talk about next week. So we will let you know. Um, if you have a topic that you'd like to see on the show, please leave it in the comments. Uh, you can hear our podcast or the podcast version of this broadcast anywhere the podcasts live. Um, all the places you can also check out our website rubberduckdevshow.com sign up for our newsletter and find all our videos and podcasts there you can also follow us on twitter at ducky dev show uh, and that's where once in a while ducky will come out and let you know what's going on or have some other random musings about programming so uh until next week happy programming happy programming <laughs>